0: I'm Charles Legg, compiler of the Daily Mail's long-running Answers to Correspondents page. Here we answer all the weird and wonderful questions sent in by our readers. In this podcast, I'm going to answer your questions on everything from entertainment to history, from science to sport, from the sensible to the surreal, all with the help of the Daily Mail's top experts. Now. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify, and leave us a review. Today, I'd like to welcome the renowned UFO researcher, Nigel Watson, author of several books on the subject, most recently Captured by Aliens, A History and Analysis of American Abduction Claims. So Nigel, when and why did you become interested in the phenomena of unidentified flying objects?
1: It came about in the late 1960s when uh, the Apollo mission was ongoing and I was just fascinated by men going to the moon and uh, so I got every astronomy book I could get from the library and they were next to UFO books so having exhausted astronomy I went on to UFOs which was a downward spiral really.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and, uh, I guess following the moon landing, there must have been quite a spike in yeah, sightings.
1: Yeah, there was a great interest in the subject, and uh, um, books like Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Daniken were also serialised in the papers, and so I busily cut out all the episodes of that, and anything else really in the newspapers I'd cut out, and... Um, It it was so fascinating that if we could land on the moon, you know, aliens who who might be thousands of years ahead of us would be doing the same. And I suppose with the ancient astronaut theories, because it's so far back in time, it's really hard to interpret biblical texts. You know, I think von Daniken looks at it in a literal manner, whereas, uh, you know, a lot of these accounts in the Bible are quite ambiguous you know, like Ezekiel's chariot, it's regarded by scholars as a sort of vision of God or a religious vision of some sort, whereas Eric von Danek and supporters regard it more as a, an ancient description of a UFO or a spaceship.
0: I think there's a, there's a number of occasions in the Bible where you could interpret it yeah. as a UFO
1: yeah like pillars of fire and voices from the sky and I suppose any miraculous event could be you know, interpreted as a sort of alien intervention and you know the star of Bethlehem has also been regarded as a UFO heralding the birth of Jesus Christ so there's even an extraterrestrial context there really but uh, there again it's all down to interpretation really and uh, I suppose that's, that's the intriguing thing about the subject of UFOs. It brings in so many areas of study. So reading a few UFO books, I kind of set up my own UFO group in, in Scunthorpe, and we we had meetings and we'd go and interview people. A lot of the sightings we had though were mainly um, lights in the sky and that sort of thing. So uh, there again, I suppose even now most sightings are of balls of light or vague things in the sky. So yeah. um, in a way, it's better if you can track down people or say they've actually seen a UFO land or if they've actually spoken to aliens or something like that.
0: That's what we're missing, isn't it? Uh, sort of photographic record, real sources, real yeah. lozenges and yeah. that type of thing.
1: Yeah, that's a problem I've been uh, getting hold of any particular evidence. Uh, in the case of alien abductions, people have set up video cameras to record people and say they've been abducted at night. But whenever that's been done, the person who's been abducted has gone into another room away from a camera. or the camera batteries have run out. So there's never any solid evidence of seeing somebody being beamed out of their bedroom or anything like that. It's quite convenient, isn't it? Yeah. That that would happen. (laughs) uh, I suppose another form of evidence has been people with scratches and scoop marks on the body. But I think sometimes you can wake up with that if you've got a bad mattress or something like that. And if you just look at yourself, if you've been walking or gardening or something, you can easily pick up beyond scratch or two and uh, you know. A scratch so... and a bad dream perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Anyway I think we're being too sceptical here.
0: Let, let, <laughs> let's have a look at one of our readers' questions Nigel and see, and right. see if we can f- find some real events. So one of our readers asked were there any reported sightings of UFOs in the Victorian times? And we, we've tackled some biblical ones.
1: Yeah. I wonder if there's
0: any spe- anything specifically from the 19th mm. century.
1: Uh, The biggest event was in the United States and they had um, sightings of airships in sort of late 1896 going into sort of April 1897. And it's a fantastic thing really because nearly every newspaper in the United States covered the story. But the sightings began in sort of California and San Francisco area and the first sightings were like lights in the sky but some people said they saw like a, a, a frame with like men inside a, a metallic frame with a cigar uh, above them, like were like peddling or powering an airship. And quite a lot of other people also then began claiming to see either lights or some people said they heard the buzz of the engines. And that progressed to an actual report in the paper of Alexander Hamilton, who said he saw uh, an airship with like four of the strangest creatures ever seen on board. And it uh, lassoed a a young heifer and, (laughs) and flew away with it. And then a few days later, the kind of mutilated remains of a heifer were found in the field. And... Uh, It wasn't until several years later it was declared to be a a Liars Club hoax, but the thing is, it did sort of lay the foundations of UFOs related to mutilated cattle. That's what I was going to ask, because there's a whole pattern of that, isn't there? Even now. There's another story of an airship crashing into um, Judge Proctor's windmill in Aurora, Texas. <laughs> and they said there's hieroglyphics indicating it came from Mars and there actually was a, a sort of pilot inside it. But they, they chucked over the remains of a pilot inside a nearby well, which seems to be a strange thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all this thing. And even, even today, people are still looking of a body of a Martian in Aurora, Texas. And there again, I think that was a case of a liar's club. I think a lot of these cases in the press at that time, to get a lot of publicity, either journalists or people wrote in these fantastic stories because it was such a, uh, so many sightings and people were talking about it. And people were excited about the thought that somebody had invented an airship you know, because at that time there weren't any viable airships. And so some people thought it could have been a secret inventor working at night. And some people said they did actually meet the pilot of these craft who said he was going around the United States testing his airship. But uh, no airship was publicly unveiled after all this. And um, there's even other stories of people meeting like Adam and Eve type characters from the craft. And uh, there's also people talking to the occupants. And they usually have some really outlandish way of describing their propulsion system. And a lot of the airships just sound incredible. They've got like rudders and flaps and wings, you know, nothing like an aircraft You'd imagine now, but something people might have imagined in the past, you know, from you know, newspaper stories about inventions. Really. But
0: it predates the Zeppelins, that sort of airship yeah. era. Yeah. But uh, I guess, I guess the ideas and blueprints are around. Oh yeah,
1: the there's lots of stories, of you know, people were flying balloons at the time and I suppose it was just a matter of getting a steerable, steerable balloon really and something that would be something practical. But uh, it was still very much in the experimental stage. I suppose it's a bit like space exploration now. We're still building new types of craft. So at that time, you know, airships were at the cutting edge of technology. And this seems to be something that does power people's explanations or views of things in the sky, they interpret them in terms of their own expectations. You know, we were looking at religious visions in the past. So something strange was interpreted as being religious. Or, and then it become a more secular thing with the, the airships. Uh, I think another thing with the American scareship wave was the fact that before then, if people saw something strange in the sky, would interpret it as a will of a wisp or a ghost or um, or even a fairy or a dragon or a snake or something, you know, supernatural. So we went from the kind of supernatural and religious explanations right up to, um, I, I the, guess we're,
0: we're they were moving into a mechanized age, weren't they? Mm, so the yeah. expectations were rather different, weren't they?
1: Yeah, and in Britain, we had similar scares in 1909 and 1913. But were very much sort of wartime scares you know people were scared of Count Zeppelins uh, new air- airships and so when lights in the sky were ser- seen over Britain were interpreted as being German Zeppelins spying out the land for a future invasion and most of these sightings weren't possible really but there again we had a um, somebody called um, Leftbridge, who was walking over Kafili Mountain, and he said he actually encountered two Germans or people in fur coats who spoke uh, something other than English. And yeah. so he, he regarded them as Germans who leapt into the basket of their airship and promptly flew away into the night sky. And he told reporters about that. And Then the next day they went back up to the mountain and we found grooves in the ground, and all sorts of news clippings uh, scattered about the site relating to, you know, the war and airships and things. But I don't know whether that was just an elaborate hoax or what, but it sort of summed up fear of German airships and what we might do if we declared war, because we had our navy, which had been all powerful, but now you had something new,
0: Yes, Something in the Skies. I I was quite interested because one of of the stories a reader dug up was um, the story of the Reverend Oliver Haywood. And this is actually back in 1664. And I think I've got it here. It says, yeah, the the Reverend Oliver Haywood wrote in his diary, on Thursday night, March 2nd, 1664, some strange company came to my house and saw a strange flaming northwards. We all went out to look at it. Sometimes it was so bright one could not see clearly on the ground, and it shone in at the windows. He went on to describe his thoughts on the matter. My apprehension was very formidable to behold. And the next entry, he said, it was seen again the night after in the West. There is also a strange noise in the air. In many parts this winter, they are called Gabrielle ratches by country people. There is another noise heard in the air, which here they call night whistlers, which make a whizzing, as if a piece of timber that arrives with violence through the air. I thought it was fascinating that this was a 17th century UFO.
1: Yeah, I like the, I like the description of the sounds with it as well. I suppose uh, it could be something like a comet or something. You know, it wouldn't be a meteor because a uh, meteor would just flash by and even the brightest fireball would go within you know, seconds. So... The only explanation I would have is that it might have been a comet, especially since it was seen the next day. But I'd have to check that one out. But um, it was a really good book by um, Jacques Valley and Chris Orbeck that look at historical cases. And Jacques Valley, in particular, wrote Passport to Magonia and is featured in uh, Close Encounters of a Third Kind. Um, one of the characters is modelled after him, and he discovered lots of old reports like that. And there's even sightings of like plates in the sky, which, you know, we'd now call flying saucers. But a lot of these were of, you know, burning lights and associated with sounds. But it's it's hard to tell. Some of them are possibly um, phenomenon like fireballs and things like that. But uh, I love I, like, the, I like, love the fact that country folk have a have a term
0: for it. and It was just yeah, part of the course for yeah. Them.
1: I like the way but uh, they describe these things because um and, uh, there's an, another one I saw from about that period. Is I saw a bright light with legs descending from a sky. So it sort of conjures up a sort of half a sort of figure of a person, but it could also be. Yeah, the landing legs of a UFO. So. Absolutely, it's quite poetic, really. Yeah, and there were some brilliant. I think the thing is, we tend to think there were just some things like the scares in America, and you know, and since nineteen forty-seven. But if you start looking back through old newspaper files, nearly every year you'll find some unusual thing seen in the sky. Like after the First World War, there were lots of sighted mystery aircraft people think aircraft have crashed into the sea, which I think were probably like meteors or something, but people thought, oh, it's got to be an aircraft. But it's really great if you've got the time to ever cross through newspaper files. And, so it uh, is an
0: endless source of research for you, Nigel. Yeah. So so moving on, we're going to move on to the next question. What was the first film to feature a flying saucer?
1: It's um, Bruce Gentry, Daredevil of the Sky. Um, It was a, I think, something like 15-part serial sort of thing you used to see uh, for kids' cinema showings. And uh, I think it just cashed in on the UFO thing at the time, because I don't think it was actually made when the term flying saucer uh, was common um, currency. And um, it, it was cheaply done, and it... The UFOs in it are some sort of remote-controlled craft, which I think they use as sort of weapons to bomb a dam or something like that. And there's a kidnap scientist in it, and it, it's more about scientists and kidnappings. But it was um,
0: interesting in that I suppose it was it was 1949, wasn't it? And this yeah. this opened up the whole idea of a flying saucer, yeah, as opposed to you know fires in the sky, and. Yeah.
1: I think another thing I think it actually caused his aircraft to stall so it was a sort of impact from you know like there's a famously UFOs caused cars to stop and this was stopping aircraft and crashed out of the sky but it also went back to a lot of the old serial films before the war where they had and people stealing aircraft and plans and things like that so it kind of spun out from all these sort of um, kidnappings and espionage stories. And also you had Flash Gordon and then Book Rogers. So the UFO thing incorporated a bit later on extraterrestrials, and then it incorporated secret plans and things like that. You know, also it shows up at the very beginning, Flame sources weren't always equated with extraterrestrials, but they quickly became an extraterrestrial threat. And I suppose the 1950s was the best time for flying saucer movies because, you know, it's still a very, very much in newspaper headlines. And I think a lot of the films cashed in on the fact that it was a sort of massive worldwide sensation. And often producers promised to show you exciting new footage of contact with aliens and flying saucers. And... um you know, there were quite a few really excellent films made there. You know, well, you, you
0: had a couple of classics, didn't you? Which I suppose um, you got the thing from Another World, the Howard Hawks, yeah, uh, in 1951, and then it's Earth versus the flying saucers, which is yeah. is that this sort of cool. archetypal one.
1: Yeah, and you have the Davey Earth stood still, and um, oh, Invaders from Mars is another classic one. Where a boy sees a flying saucer land. And it sort of burrows itself underground, oh, and then course, it starts yeah. putting implants into uh, 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 into adults. So all the adults around this boy become aliens. And you know, it's a classic ending where uh, he's sort of saved by a policeman, and then he looks at the back of his neck and sees himself also an alien. And uh, that,
0: that's my viewing for this evening. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that one. So is, it, is, it, is that that's how you spend your weekends, Nigel?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not so much lately. I've seen most of them, and uh, but it's always good to see them again because you see them in a fresh light, and it's it's brilliant the sort of things um, they covered in these movies. Some are really cheesy and bad, but that's part of the the joy of them, really. The charm, um, real flights of
0: the imagination.
1: But also they fed into. Modern-day accounts like the Betty and Barney Hill case, which occurred in the 1960s, seems to have been um, have a lot of themes in it that came from the 1950s films, and it, and also then real accounts of alien abductions and UFOs feed back into films. So there was a constant interface between, you know, media and what people really think of. Uh, experienced or seen in the sky.
0: A feedback loop, and I suppose it was the early days, early-ish days of cinema as well. Uh, Yeah. Certainly sci-fi cinema, so yeah, yeah. people were dreaming.
1: And it kind of got celebrated by the likes of you know, George Lucas and Star Wars was a celebration of Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers. And Close Encounters of the Third Kind was, you know, a brilliant new reworking of all the flying saucer films of the 50s. So, uh, in a way, there was a massive revival in the late 70s of um, the golden age of sort of science fiction movies. Question number three, what was the
0: reason for the all-night anti-aircraft barrage over Los Angeles on February the 24th, 1942? It has been suggested that UFOs were to blame.
1: Yeah, I think it's mainly because there's a classic photograph of searchlights going into uh, to show uh, an object uh, at the focus of all these beams of light. But some people have argued the picture has been sort of tampered with to make it look good in a newspaper, really, uh, and to put more contrast in it. And also, yeah, it, was,
0: it was a genuine event, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, they called it the Battle of Los Angeles, and I, I understand. <laughs> Um, the the incident involved um, an anti-aircraft barrage, sort of firing shells up into the air, yeah. um, sort of fourteen hundred shells into the air. So it was quite yeah. a you know an event.
1: Yeah, uh, I think it certainly caused uh, quite a, a, a lot of panic in, in LA, and also was kind of rumours that Japanese submarines were operating nearby, and the old thing about you know it was kind of triggered by um, the thought that Japanese aircraft might be attacking L.A. Presumably, you know, there must have been rumours that aircraft carriers were off the coast. So there's a lot of warners about this, which sort of echo, you know, the British 1909 and 1913 scares. And you often find with either the threat of war or in wartime, you do get these kind of scares about what, Uh, what I've seen in the sky relates to the worst fears, the worst nightmares of people. And the LA one, a a brilliant one, and also um, Steven Spielberg made the film 1941, but uh, actually um, kind of depicts these sort of rumours and everything. But he did it as a kind of comedy film, but it, it... it kind of is more of a cult classic now, but it's, it's worth seeing that film to see the kind of things that were going on in L.A. at that time, even though it's more done for comedy than for historical accuracy, but... Well, uh,
0: there was a dodgy Hollywood film more recently, wasn't there, as well, called The Battle of...
1: Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, it was been two of two, actually, and they kind of use the title, really, but nothing much of the actual no, no, thing, no, the I think thing it, itself. But... I think another thing with that is it's so much like the interpretation of uh, what used to be called mass hysteria that it's a plausible threat, and that you know the authorities, are, you know people in authority, are also taking it seriously. And then you've got some trigger like in, I think some people said it might have been a balloon or something like. That. Got carried away but
0: supposedly the 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 office of uh, air force history in america in 1983 <laughs> put the incident down to a lost weather balloon compounded by war nerves yeah that sounds about right
1: <laughs> but the problem with us is that, like the famous Rosswell crash in 1947 it's also studied by united states committees and then their explanation was it was a weather balloon as well so perhaps you know, the weather balloon theory had worn a bit thin. Now. Oh,
0: interesting! Yeah,
1: and also Roswell. Um, one one outlandish theory of Roswell was that it was caused by um, a Japanese balloon carrying incendiary bombs. Apparently, in during the war, the Japanese sent out hundreds of these balloons with bombs attached to send them over to the, Na- the United States. But the the United States Government didn't want people to know about them because it would cause panic. And apparently, I think a family of picnickers actually got blown up by one of these balloons, but otherwise, yes, well, of course. Yeah. yeah, but uh, uh, kind of a, a threat of those, um, if it had become public, you know, it could have also caused even worse fears. And I think that's what happened in, in the period of the 19, late 1940s where. So many people were reporting UFO sightings, like the United States Air Force and the CIA and perhaps even the FBI were concerned about so many sightings. I think we'd clog up intelligence channels in case... You know, Russians did try and in doing a missile attack. It would get lost in the video you know, of these other people crying wolf, really. So, in a way, the authorities usually like to come out with a mundane explanation. Usually, after, you know, and usually a lot of these scares bubble up, reach a peak, and then we go downhill again. Um, usually, it's like the American airship scare. There's quite a few really good sightings and then it kind of bubbled along and there's a few more and then people start saying oh we were at work or kids were pranking people and then, then weather you know, balloons yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah if we hear so, weather balloons we know yeah. it's a
0: euphemism <laughs> it's real
1: <I> think <laughs> they're operated by aliens <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: absolutely they, they have to be yeah. Interesting story, this one. Did an Australian aviator disappear while describing a UFO flight in the 70s? Yeah, this is
1: uh, something that happened in 1978. And um, he was flying at night time, And he was, I think it was in Northern Australia.
0: Yeah, it was a, F- a Frederick Valentich.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, it. And uh, he was only about 20 years old, so I don't think he was a particularly experienced pilot. And he he it, it was also flying at night and um, he reported there was something following his aircraft and um, he kind of got frightened by seeing something unusual. And then um, shortly after reporting that was a sort of metallic grinding sound and then there was radio silence. And after that period he was never seen again and he was interested in UFOs. So you know, we obviously the UFO connection was employed quite early on but um, it's a bit surprising that his aircraft wasn't found or anything, although somebody said that in recent years a piece of engine cowling has been found that might have been attached to his aircraft but I'm not sure how they might identify that after so many years and other, yeah, there are other theories about it but you know, one is that he went into one of these kind of a sort of a critical dive. Where when a pilot gets disorientated, you know, the lights he saw might have been a reflection of his own lights. He might have actually been upside down.
0: Well, within a cloud or something, re- yeah. reflecting
1: the light back. And I think we call it a death spiral where a pilot gets disorientated and doesn't know where the horizon is and then... The lights moving around might have been his own aircraft, really. But, um, you know, that's just speculation. So, you know, you've got, I think, with most classic UFO cases, you've got the exotic explanation and then the more mundane one. So you can pick pick one you one like, really. <laughs> yeah.
0: but, uh, but as with all these things, the, the psychology is quite interesting in that Valentich was a passionate UFO. Yeah. wasn't it I mean there's even been suggestions that it was it was deliberate I mean that yeah. might be a bit extreme and upsetting for the family I suppose but that he'd done it deliberately to prove UFOs yeah but
1: I think there was a case like like that in,
0: speculation
1: yeah I think was a case like that in France where a man disappeared for like five or six days and came back allegedly being abducted by aliens but I think it later came out that people had seen him in the streets of Paris <laughs> you know. But, <laughs> uh, but there have, there have been cases like Travis Walton case, there's a famous one, they made a film of it called Fire in the Sky and he went missing for several days and uh, after his friends had seen him sort of zapped by a flying saucer and they'd all driven away and left him in the woods and he said he'd been taken on board a UFO, and he'd been medically examined, and it was quite a dramatic event. But it's still hard to know what happened. You know, he only described something that might have only taken an hour or two, and yet he was supposed to have been on board this craft, you know, for several days. So it does make me wonder, you know, what, what he was doing in that period. But that's I guess
0: time a, might, operate, might operate differently. Yeah,
1: well, that's another factor, isn't it? But it's quite rare, really, because most cases only involve, like, a couple of hours or four hours, something like that.
0: When did alien abduction reports begin?
1: Well, most people think it's a in Barney Hill case, uh, where they encountered a, a UFO in 1961 when we were driving late at night, and they'd, they'd seen a UFO following them, and they stopped the car and Barney Hill had seen a flying saucer with windows in it, and he'd seen these figures in the windows, and one looked a bit like a Nazi, which scared him, so he drove off. And we got home, and then we got home about two or three hours later than we expected, and um, Betty Hill started having nightmares about being examined by aliens inside a UFO. And they um, rang up the local airbase about it, but didn't really get far with that. And then they reported it to a civilian UFO organisation. But even they thought their case was a bit sensational. And um, it wasn't until Barney Hill had suffered from quite a lot of stress and they had some uh, hypnotic regression sessions to get to the bottom of what was causing his stress. And uh, they both recounted being taken on board a flying saucer in two hours of missing time on that night. And Betty said she'd been probed by needles attached to wires and she had some sort of weird instrument put into her navel as a part of what they called a pregnancy test. And Barney Hill, they were sort of intrigued by his foe's teeth. And uh, it just seems a bit... Bizarre really if aliens have been coming here for a long time would know a bit more about us. And um, um but that, did their
0: story their stories match, did they? They
1: Um, yeah, roughly. But like in a lot of these cases with abductees when we're abducted together, we're always separated by the aliens, so we're never quite line up if you know what I mean. You know, they equal are both said about going inside the craft and returning from the craft, but there isn't much uh, on board the craft, that's the same. And uh, Betty Hill actually had a chat with the the leader of the aliens, and um, she tried taking a book away, but they wouldn't let her do that. And um, she also saw uh, like a star chart on the wall, and from memory she wrote down, The star positions and the routes that she thought the the craft took, but um, as as some sceptics have said, said, why would the aliens need a star chart? You know, even even we don't don't use maps now, do we? Well, I do, but you know, most people don't even use maps anymore. So having a star chart seems a bit uh, something else. It was
0: alien nostalgia. Yeah. well, Nigel, look, it's been absolutely fascinating having you give us the insight into UFOs. And I think that's about all we have time for today. As I say, it just leaves me to say a thank you for Nigel for giving us an insight into the world of UFOs. And uh, can I say it? Keep watching the skies. That's all we've got time for this week. But I'll be back with you and another expert guest in two weeks' time. Don't forget, you'll be able to listen back to this and all our other MailPlus podcasts at mailplus.co.uk or via Spotify and
1: Apple podcasts. Thank you for listening.